God is so very, very good and faithful. Even when, as I spoke about this morning, in our disbelief and doubt, God is still God and He still offers that invitation. Tonight I've got, I guess really kind of the same kind of message. Not about our disbelief and doubt so much as our routine. And Brother Stanley made mention of it. We get in this routine sometimes of, well, it's Sunday night. It's time to go to church. It's Wednesday night. It's time to go to church. We'll be talking to someone. Well, it's Wednesday. I got to get off the phone. I got to go to church. Like it's a task or a chore. Kind of like you view going to work on a Monday morning. Well, I've got to get up and go to work so I can pay the car, the house, have groceries, get cleats for my kid, whatever it may be. And then we'll look at church the same way. Well, I've got to go to church. Not I get to, not come and worship with me. I, I got to go. I got to go to church. I'll talk to you tomorrow. I got to go to church today. Oh, it's Sunday. I only got one day of rest. Saturday is my only day. I got to get up and go to church this morning. That old preacher will be preaching on me. But you know, we're not alone in that. You know, Solomon said there's no new thing under the sun. No new thing under the sun. There was a church some just shy of 2,000 years ago in Ephesus that was much the same way. Matter of fact, they were much the same as us in a whole lot of ways. So tonight, and in, in continuing about the Spirit, because at the very end of it, as the message to all the churches say, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So tonight, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to bounce around a little, but this is the, the gist of where I'm going. And as y'all find that, if you would stand, and you can read off the screen or out of your paper, either one. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, or Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. We should desire to overcome. 
Because God says, To him that overcome will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, tonight I pray simply, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, if we can hear with spiritual ears, there's nothing else we need other than what the Spirit is telling us. Let us glorify and honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to tell you, we're a lot like Ephesus. I want to give you just a little bit of a background on them. You see, if you go back, you see, and I'm going to go back a little bit here in a minute, but if you go back and you'll read in the first part of Revelation, you'll see that Jesus has visited John, and he has told him to write these things which he has already seen, these things which he has seen now, and these things which he is going to see. And he tells him to write it unto these seven churches in Asia. Now, obviously, there was many more than just seven churches in Asia, I think these were picked for whatever their particular significance may be, uh, but also in the fact that it is Revelation and it is seven churches that he picked out, seven being very significant of completeness or wholeness. So I really believe that this was seven modern churches that had seven very real problems in that particular day, but it was written in such a way that it could be applicable to our churches throughout all ages. It's not that the church in Ephesus was one particular age or one particular time that the church would go through and then the church in Smyrna was a particular age and then the church in Paragamos was a particular age or Thyatira was a particular age. These were churches that were all suffering these problems simultaneously. And, and if you notice, he said, write this to the church of Ephesus, but then he goes on down and he says, he that hath ear let him hear what the spirit says to the church us so this was for all churches because Ephesus was not alone they were not going to be alone in time and what was going on but Ephesus was a very significant area they were very cosmopolitan uh, I believe their goddess or god was Artemis and I believe it's in Acts 19 if you will go and look you will see that they were charged with keeping that particular temple up they were in a a very significant trade route. I believe that's why they were placed first in the letter of the churches because if the Roman emperors or the Roman royalty would come or even merchants would come into that part of Asia before they could reach any of the other six places listed as churches, they would have to dock and deboard in Ephesus before they could get to these other places. So it was very significant. Now, in much the same way, I believe that we are significant. Now, I don't believe in any sense that the United States is mentioned in the Bible. I might lose some people on that one, but I'm sorry you can read it through, and America's just not listed. Jesus is listed. Israel is listed. Any other thing we try to force into it is us reading our own context into the text. In other words, you're not trying to understand what the Spirit's saying. You're trying to understand what society is saying and trying to fit that onto the Bible. Now, that was a big problem also with Ephesus. We see that with the uh, Nicolaitans, and I'll explain that in a bit more. But they were an area that is very much like us today. We, we are a prominent place, and there's a lot of things that if you want to get done in this world, it's America first. We have the greatest financial district in the world. Our stock market impacts everything else going on in the world. 
uh, people that sell more phones, more cars, more everything. Everything that's distributed to the world comes from here. They might be made elsewhere, then they'll be shipped in here, and then they'll be shipped back out. We are, uh, for all intents and purposes, when we speak financially, we are the center of the world right now. And we have allowed that to impact us in very negative ways. Now, we still do, much like Ephesus, in that we work for the Lord. We send out more missionaries into the world than any other nation on earth. And if we are realistic about things, and if we look at history and we look at the Bible, uh, realistically speaking, the center of Christianity should really rest in the Middle East, in, in the Palestine and Israel area. Why? Because that's where it was born. That's where they went to the upper room. That's where Peter came out and preached a sermon and said, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied about. And they seen 3,000 people added into the church in one day. It's where Paul and John and Peter and all of the rest went and preached was over in the Middle East. When they're talking about Asia, they're talking about parts of Turkey, which is solidly in the Middle East today. Part of Turkey's in Europe, parts in Asia, but we consider it the Middle East. And somehow over time, it has come to be that as the United States of America, we send out more missionaries than anybody else. We're sending missionaries back into these areas where Christianity started. And I believe God does honor that. I believe he can look at the church of the United States today and he can look at us and say with confidence, I know thy works. He knows that we've got faithful people that try to do the right thing by the Lord and, and try to study to show themselves approved and they preach and they make sure the word is going back out and we support Israel and all of these things. So he can look at us and say, I know thy works. I believe he can also look at us and say, and thy labor. You see, works is one thing, but actually putting your hand to the plow and not just putting in to send missionaries out is something entirely different. Those eggs that raise money to send money back into missions and projects for women's ministry don't make themselves. The pies that are being sold don't make themselves. This land over here that's being cleared don't clear itself. Stanley just don't have some kind of download file for these songs where he can just pop a little card in his head and have all the words pop in and the tune and the rhythm and everything that it takes. It takes time and effort and labor. I can't just get up here and preach through the Bible and, and be able to give you something that should be food for your soul without taking a little bit of time and dedication to work through and understand what's going on. The finances of the church do not handle themselves. And, and I can assure you that James and Kathy both spend a, a lot of time going through and making sure our, not just our finances, not sure just that the checkbook is in balance, but also in making sure that we've got the tax exempt number that we need at this particular place or that particular place, that taxes are paid on, on labor that has to be paid, that our everything is, has to be in order. And it doesn't just happen. It's labor. I'm not so sure he could say that he sees our patience, but we'll go with it and pretend that he can. I don't know that I have any patience, 
But I know as a whole, the, the church, this church, the Church of America, and generally the Christian church of the world has been very patient. Here we are some 2,000 years after Paul was fully expecting to see Jesus come back and carry the church out of the world. We are still being patient in preaching and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is risen and that he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. So we have been patient. Over the years, I could go back through uh, uh, the historical theology of the church and, and point out to you various places throughout time that we have looked at people and said, that is a heresy of what you're trying to teach. That doctrine is not right. You are a false apostle. And it has happened since uh, just right after Christ died, and it happens all the way up through today when people will try to push a false doctrine. And by and large, the church throughout history, is held firm to a doctrine that Jesus Christ is the only way. So we have searched out and have not made fellowship with those that bear a false doctrine. We proclaim the truth. So I believe he could also look at us and say, How thou canst not bear them which are evil. And we have tried them and we look at them and we tell them that's heretical. That's not being an apostle. And he goes on to say, and are not, and has found them liars. That's a strong word, but the truth is the truth. And if it's not the truth, Jesus said he was the truth. So if it's not Jesus, then obviously it's a lie. It's just good common sense. Matter of fact, verse 3, I think, is also very much true. We have born and had patience. And all of this we have labored for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, and we have not fainted. Now, one would think, and what we will preach from the pulpits today, is that is enough to get you into heaven. If you're saved and you're working in the church, that's enough to get you into heaven. I mean, if we read this first part and we stop right there, we would think, boy, that church is good and they're on their way to heaven. They would be one that would stand up in an old-fashioned testimony service in the church of God and say, I praise God that I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and on my way to heaven. When we used to have testimony services where people would testify, they didn't get up and testify that God gave them a new car, that God gave them a new house, that God did this, that God did that for anybody else. But it would be very simple. We would be able to get through everybody in here in about 10 to 15 minutes because every person would have the same testimony. I thank God that he saved me, sanctified me, filled me with the Holy Ghost, and I'm on my way to heaven. And then the next one would stand up and their testimony would be exactly the same and if we stop at verse 3 we would think surely that's an old-fashioned church of God that could stand up and testify like they used to but verse 4 says he has something against them even all of these things that he has outlined that is good with the church he says, nevertheless, this isn't John. This is Jesus Christ talking to John, telling him, this is what you need to tell this church. You go and you tell this church that I, Jesus Christ, have something against them. They have left their first love. Now, there's a lot of different things that people try to fit this to. 
Some will say that they were just simply not doing missionary work, but I don't know that you can read that into the text from what I read. It seems that they were indeed pretty active in the church and making sure that the work of the church was going forward. It seemed that they were doing it at least in the right name, but I think that first love would be for the right reason. You see, love has been missing out of everything that's listed up through here. And we can see from the Bible in various places, and I'm going to go one place Old Testament and one New Testament, to where if you try not to do something, it's bad. If you do something in the wrong way, it's bad. Now what I'm seeing here, and I believe this is where a lot of folks are at, a lot of churches are at, and why I hit on what Stanley said, that, well, it's Sunday night, we've got to go to church. It's Wednesday, we've got to go to church. I believe that's where the church of Ephesus was fairly, firmly, squarely, right in that area where their first love was a love of Jesus Christ. What they had become was a church that loved routine. They had become a church that thrived on being seen doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were a church that even though they said it right, even though they acted it out right, what they were missing was a fire within them. They wasn't going to church because they get to go to church. They wasn't giving and sending out because they get to give and send out missions. They wasn't doing the things that they were doing because they got to. They were doing the things that they were doing because they had to. Their religion had become their God. Y'all have heard me say it before, and I know a lot of people may disagree with me, but I believe I'm right, and I believe this helps bear it out in the Bible, that you can make anything your God above Jesus Christ. You can make it red back hymnal your God above Jesus Christ. You can make a version of the Bible your God over Jesus Christ. You can make anything, if you hold it that that's the only way to God, that is a God above Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. This church had got to the point to where their works was their way of life. They had to go to church to do the works. They had to go to church to do the labor. They had to show patience and preach the name of Jesus because that's what they had always done. How many people do we have come to church because that's what they've always done? Grandma went to church. Daddy went to church. I've got to go to church. We've got churches full of people that come because they have to, because it's a Sunday or a Wednesday, that have no fire in them. We look at them, and boy, they say the right things. They do the right things. They put tithes in the, in the offering plate every week or every month or whatever it is. We've got people that will get up and sing for God. We've got people that will go out and visit. We've got people that will do all of these things, but they're doing it out of routine. And when they do that, God will look at you and say, I have something against you. Now, that's not popular. That's not going to get an amen at any church in the world. But I promise you tonight that I'm telling you the truth because if Jesus did it once, like I said this morning, he'll do it again. He's no respecter of persons. If he looked at the very church that Paul spent significant time in, 
the place to where John very well could have been exiled from and was writing this letter back to. You see, John spent a fair amount of time in Ephesus, they believe. This is a church that had some of the greatest preachers and apostles in the world started, come out of it. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, it has become routine for you, and I have that against you. Now, friend, let me tell you something. If God's got something against you, you're not entering into heaven. Oh. You can do all the work you want. You can speak all that Christian language you want. You can show up to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. You can give 10% plus in the offering every time the plate comes by. You can empty your pockets and try to be like the widow that put in two mites. But if you're doing it to serve religion instead of loving God, then God will look at you and he'll say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What I'm looking for and what I'm hoping this brings about is some people that come to the realization that Jeremiah came to. One of my favorite scriptures is Jeremiah 20 and 9. Now you can go back a little bit and you will see that Peshur, the son of Amir the priest, who was the chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying and he smote Jeremiah and put him in the stocks and then Jeremiah prophesied to him. But then Jeremiah is ridiculed and he says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Everyone's laughing at me, God. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. People were laughing, just like they may laugh at us now. Oh, look at you serving God. You know there ain't no need in that. Why do you continue to do that silly thing? Why? Because God made me. I'm going to sing to him because if I don't, the rocks will cry out. I don't need no rock crying out in my place. God put breath in my lungs. I need to cry out for myself and give him praise and thanks and glory and honor. But then Jeremiah said this, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He had purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to be touched. He had purposed in his heart that he was just going to go through the motions. He had purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to do all this carrying on in the house of the Lord anymore. I believe Jeremiah was a lot like Ephesus. He had got to the point to where he was tired of it and he was just going to do what he knew to do because that's what he had always done. 
But I need a group of people that are also like Jeremiah in the aspect that you have something inside of you like fire shut up in your bones. You might have purposed something in your heart, but can I tell you tonight, I don't really care. What I need is the fire of God to get shut up in your heart because when it starts burning bright enough, you're not going to be able to withstand whatever you've purposed because God is more powerful. You won't be able to keep your mouth shut if the Holy Spirit opens it because the Holy Spirit is more powerful I need some people with some fire but also need people with that love you know he said they left their first love right in 1 Corinthians 13 that's the love chapter if you ever want to understand love just go 1 Corinthians 13 you should understand it if you read the King James like I preach out of what you'll see is the word charity let me give you a quick understanding of that. That word charity, translated charity there, is agape. It is love. But it's a total, complete, selfless, giving love. So the translation of charity is not wrong, but I don't think it's complete. Just like I believe any that translates it to love is not complete. In other words, it's both. It's a complete giving of yourself. We get mixed up and we think that love, someone left their first love, well, they can love something else. I used to love this kind of burger, but they slipped, and now I love this burger over here. My Lord, we treat marriages the same way now. I used to love this one, but now this one's coming along, and I love this one a little bit better. There, now, there are biblical grounds for divorce. Don't misunderstand me. If you've got someone that's going around on you saying, well, I love this one over here better. No, they're, the devil is a liar. They're in adultery, and they need to repent. But if they leave you, you've got grounds for divorce because they've committed adultery. There are grounds for adultery, so don't misunderstand. But people will do that now. Oh, I just married them for this reason, but I love this one. And, and lo and behold, they'll get married to them. And two weeks later, they're on down the road with someone else. You'd be, I thought you married this person back here. I, I just, I'm so mad at them this evening, I can't handle it. I'm, I'm going to go spend some time over here. That's what love is nowadays. Oh, and we'll talk about loving a spouse or loving someone the same way we'll talk about loving an animal, the same way we'll talk about loving food, the same way we'll talk about loving a car. We have got it mixed up with emotion. We have got love mixed up with an emotion, and love is not an emotion. You see, the churches at Ephesus did not leave their first emotion. What they left was their first commitment. You understand that their first commitment was to Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen and having the keys to death, hell, and the grave. But now they've left that and they're committed to their routine. They left their first commitment. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity or have not love, commitment, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Oh, but I love how Paul goes on. We like that one. Oh, you can do all this, but if you don't have love, you're just a sounding brass. Okay, don't stop there because that's not the whole story. Is it Paul Harvey used to say this is the rest of the story? And though I have the gift of prophecy, 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Now we're talking about someone that has enough faith to speak and God does it. Move this obstacle out of my way and it is picked up and cast away. We are talking about someone that can look at you and tell you everything you've done and everything that's going to happen. And if Paul says, if they have not committed love, you have nothing. You can prophesy all you want. You can speak to mountains and make them move into the sea all you want. But if you're not committed to Jesus Christ and instead you're committed to the miracle, you're committed to this, you're committed to that, you have nothing. And at the end of days, you'll be one of those that will stand before God and you'll say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we heal the sick in your name? And he's going to say, depart. That's biblical. But what we like to preach today is one way or the other. you got to just love. No, you also have to speak truth. You have to be committed to one thing. One thing, a narrow-minded, horse-blinder commitment to Jesus Christ. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... Though I give my body to be burned. Though I'm willing to die for the cause of your name. But I've not lived it out in commitment to you. I just want to be a martyr. You can be a martyr and go to hell. How do I know that? Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity. It profiteth me nothing. You want to know what the church at Ephesus was doing? They were mixing the world with the church. Or trying to. Some of them was. Now the church that he wrote to was not. But even though they were trying to stay pure, they wasn't doing it out of love, out of commitment to Christ. They were doing it out of commitment to routine. How do I know this? He says this has... Thou thast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know what the Nicolaitans were? They were the ones that was running the church, that was trying to be syncretic in their worship. In other words, they were trying to take this temple worship of Artemis and bring it into the church and mix the two and somehow reach those in Ephesus by allowing them to still also take part in some things that they would do for Artemis. Folks, can I tell you, we can stand against the world and we can hate the world. But if we do it out of routine, we have not love and we will not enter heaven. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Unto, not the church at Ephesus, not the church 2,000 years ago, The churches. The Spirit is still telling us today that we can hate the world. That we can do everything by the letter. We can open up our book of minutes in the church of God and we can follow it step for step. 
We can put in tithe every time we get paid. We can come to the church house every time it's open. We can prophesy to people. We can preach the gospel. We can teach Sunday school. We can tell people that Jesus is the only way, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. We can cast out demons. We can see the sick healed. But if we are doing it for any reason other than a commitment to and a love of Jesus Christ, we will not see heaven. God can use a donkey to talk to someone. You think he can't use someone else? Do you think that donkey's in heaven? No. I hate to bust your bubble. Fluffy ain't over there waiting on you. There are dogs in heaven. There are cats in heaven. There are goldfish in heaven. There's horses in heaven. There's cows in heaven. And much to my dismay, there's also spiders. Everything that's ever been created has a place in heaven. Everything. But if you don't have an accountable soul, you're not there to praise. You're just there as part of creation in general. Let me not go down that path. But it says to him that overcometh. In other words, him that don't fall into a rut. We get in ruts in life, don't we? And man, that's easy to do. When you have to get up every day and do the same thing every day. It's easy to get into a rut. It's easy to get into a rut with our prayer life. My routine is the same every morning. I don't care if it's Monday Sunday or someday in between. Unless we've got to run at breakneck speed when I get up, my routine is the same every morning. I get up, I go to the coffee pot. I get my cup of coffee, I go out on the front porch. It don't matter if it's 20 degrees or 90 degrees. I go out and I'll walk that porch or walk my driveway and I'll just talk to the Lord for a bit. Every morning that's my routine. It can be easy to get in a rut. It can be easy to get the coffee to go out and say the same words today that I said yesterday. To say the same words tomorrow that I say today. To put no thought and effort into serving God. To praying for the specific needs of specific people on a specific day. But still rather just going out and spending time with the Lord. That can be routine and it can be born out of commitment to routine instead of a love of God. Just because you pray every morning don't mean a thing. I know this is a harsh message, ain't it? Folks, I'm just trying to help you. I'm trying to help you be one that says to him that overcometh. To you that will overcome, that will not get stuck in routine and instead will stay committed to Jesus Christ. To you, he will give to you to eat. Of the tree of life. The tree of life means you will never die. You'll be able to live forever and ever. That is your hope. That is your hope is the tree of life. Why? Because it is in the midst of the paradise of God. That is what we should be striving for. That is what we should be living for. We don't need to live for Mill Creek Church of God. Though I hope you do. Don't misunderstand me. But if that's what you're living for, I have failed. 
If you are living simply to see this church succeed, I have failed. I need you to be living to hope to be in the midst of the paradise of God. I need something inside of you that made Jeremiah open his mouth. I need something inside of you that drives you to do those things that Paul talked about. I need something inside of you that will help you hear and discern what the Spirit is saying. And I believe if we saw what John saw, that would help us a little bit. I believe. If you go back just a little bit, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He was so terrified of what he saw that he couldn't move. He was paralyzed. Whether it be out of awe or fear. It just said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. This is Jesus talking. John, don't fear. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, current, alive, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He will never die again. Jesus Christ suffered one time for all, and he will not be defeated. He will not ever die again. But not just that, he says he has the key. Jesus Christ himself told John, I have the keys of hell and of death. In other words, he has went down and took the padlock off of death, and it no longer has a hold on you. If you will live for God, if you will commit to God, if you will love him with everything in you, if you will overcome to the end, Jesus has already taken the padlock off of death. You might leave this old body, you might leave this old earth, but you will live forever, and it will be at the feet of the king. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. You go over to chapter 5 is the hereafter. Chapter 4 and 5, and I'm trying to wrap up, I promise. Chapter 4 is the throne set in heaven. I just call it the throne room scene. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he's seen all of this to write to the churches. And in chapter 4, he is in the Spirit in heaven. The Spirit is showing him what's to come hereafter. Door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. You see in verse 6 that round about the throne were four, four beasts full of eyes before and behind. You go down to verse 10 and you see that there were four and twenty elders that fell down before him that sat on the throne. And they worshipped him that lived forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. 
you go into chapter 5 and you see that the things which are getting ready to happen may not be good because it's a book that's sealed. A book of scrolls that are sealed. And they're concerned in heaven because no one can open them. But you see that there's a lamb in heaven. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. Jesus Christ has already prevailed. I need some people that are committed to Him. Drop your other commitments. Drop everything you've learned. Focus on Jesus and worry about learning about Him. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns, he's all-powerful. Seven, seven eyes, he's all-seeing. Which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. All the power, all the presence, of God is here. You think Jesus isn't powerful? It says he came and took. He didn't walk up to God the Father and say, Daddy, can I have that scroll in your hand? That's not what your Bible says. It says he walked up with authority and took it. That's what those words mean. It don't signify that he went humbly asking for something. Jesus Christ is so powerful and has so much right and authority with the Father that he just went and took out of his hand the scrolls. You better not try it. <laughs> but it says he took the book of him that sat up on the throne. And then whoever had that book apparently holds the power. Why? Because then, instead of the elders and the beast worshiping the one on the throne, they are now worshiping the Lamb, falling down before Him. They sung a new song. And I'm just going to stop right there. We need some people to sing a new song. You're stuck in routine. You're stuck in ruts. still do the work, you still do the labor, you still do all these things, but if you have lost your commitment to Christ and you're instead committed even to the local church above Jesus Christ, He has it against you. I need some people that are willing to sing a new song, some people that are willing to let that fire come out. Some people that will walk in commitment to Jesus above all else. I'm not telling you you're bad. I'm telling you if you'd go back and read the first three verses of that that I read about Ephesus, that should have you shouting and singing if you follow any of that. But I need you to read all of it. Now I'm not doing this as a rebuke. I'm not preaching this as a rebuke. I'm preaching this because I need some people that want to get to heaven above all else. That's our goal, is it not? To get to heaven above all else. I just want some people to take some with them. So my call this evening is simple. I, I've preached to where you know whether you're saved or not, I hope. 
I'm just going to simply open the altars. And I would encourage you, this is my encouragement tonight, I would encourage to come and make sure your first love is still your first love. Nothing more, nothing less, because if you keep that first love, I promise you, you'll sing a new song. I promise. The altars are open.